The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are in a series here at Heritage Christian Fellowship teaching through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, If you were here last week, Pastor Jeremy got us into chapter 3. The first two chapters of Genesis were creation, and there was this beautiful picture of God's perfect creation and him him endowing his creation with certain uh, commands and commissions. Uh, And we talked about the cultural mandate and just in marriage, and there was these beautiful pictures of of like the, the unity and the harmony of creation. And then last week, Pastor Jeremy got us into chapter 3 when sin was introduced into the equation. And there was a whole tour through the garden, a whole tour in the relationship between God and man as Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked. They felt shame. And they tried to cover their shame with fig leaves. Would you turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 8. We're going to see God's response to the the failures and the sins of the man and the woman. How did God respond as these two two people who were created in his image turned their back on him and rebelled against him? Let's pick up in verse 8 of chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The title of my sermon today is God's Pursuit of Rebellious Humanity. Today I'm going to cover a a couple things. I want to give you a, a heads up early on so you can track as I'm teaching through the text. In his pursuit of rebellious humanity, God is present with the rebels. And the second thing I'm going to cover is that in the pursuit of rebellious humanity, God probes with piercing questions. You can orient yourselves by looking up at the the screen. In his pursuit of rebellious humanity, God is present with the rebels. And in his pursuit of rebellious humanity, God probes with piercing questions. The big idea, the amazing truth that we're we're going to consider today is that God pursues rebellious humanity. Would you pray with me? Father, as we, as we dig into your word today, God, as we consider this amazing truth that you, divine, holy, sovereign, creator God, pursue rebellious, sinful humanity with love, God, would you, would you enable us to see that, to experience it, not just to have it be something that tickles our brains, but a truth that penetrates into the center of our being. God, in your love for us, you pursue us. God, enable us to experience that truth on a very real level today. We love you. We invite you to meet us in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When my kids were smaller, one of the games we loved to play in my family was hide and seek. 
And it wasn't just any sort of hide and seek. We like to amp it up a little bit. And, and so sometimes we'd be sitting around the kitchen table and, or just doing some sort of benign family activity and it would be boring. And I would just start counting really loud. One, two. And my kids were like, no, hide and seek. They'd jump up with glee and, and they'd leave the dinner table, chairs going everywhere. My wife loved it when I did this, by the way. And my kids would run. And they'd run and hide downstairs, upstairs, behind sofas, under beds, in closets. And I would get to 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever it was. But I didn't want to just go look for them, like, in a boring way. So I would become a velociraptor. I would pull my arms in, and I would walk around like this. And they would hear my feet walking through the house, and I would squeal like a velociraptor. And it was terrifying to my children, and I loved it. And uh, I, would, I would go up the stairs, and I would make really sinister sounds, like... I could hear them, like... I was terrified. It was so fun. And they would get up and run from me in horror, and I'd chase after them like a terrifying velociraptor, and they would cry. But it was great. I loved it. And I'm sure my kids will love telling their therapist about it later, but it was one of my favorite things to do. I, I think about being chased down and mauled by a velociraptor. That's a terrifying thought. We've all seen Jurassic Park. In our rebellion against God... At times, when we're in seasons of rebellion, we try to run and hide from him. And when we do this, and when we imagine that God might be pursuing us, sometimes you might be tempted to imagine him as a velociraptor coming after us. I first turned my face to Jesus 35 years ago, and in that time, there have been seasons in my life that I have tried to run from God. There's been seasons in my life that I lived in open rebellion. I've not been immune from slipping into foolish acts of rebellion against God. I've been in vocational ministry for 22 years, walking alongside others, and I haven't seen it all, but I've seen a lot. I've seen others try to flee from God and and hide from him in countless ways. Now there's those who are in obvious rebellion, who aren't trying to hide the fact they're rebelling from God and and running from him. I, I think of the friend who knows God's will for his life sexually, and yet in open disobedience chooses to willfully engage in sexual sin. I think of another friend who knows she doesn't have grounds for biblical divorce, and yet she chooses to walk away from a salvageable marriage in willful disobedience to the vows she made, knowing that they're in disobedience. But then there's the less obvious acts of rebellion against God. Those acts of rebellion that are veiled, they're hidden, they're disguised, they're not as obvious and outward as the other ones. They're camouflaged, and honestly, sometimes we can even spiritualize our rebellion against God. I think of those who hide from God through their works. They say to themselves, if I stay busy doing things for God, I won't have time to pause and consider if I'm actually being a person of God. I'm going to carry around my religious resume, but I'm going to use it as a shield so I never have to address the issues of my own heart before a holy God. I think of those who hide from God through knowledge. They say to themselves, if I know a lot about God, and if I have a silver tongue... I don't have to deal with the rebellion in my own heart. And I can even convince myself and others through my silver tongue, through my knowledge, that I'm actually in the center of God's will when in fact I'm walking in open rebellion. Well, here's the thing I've learned. After 35 years of walking with Jesus, after 22 years of walking with others who are walking with Jesus, God will find you and he'll have his way with you. He will. One way or another. God pursues those he created to bear his image, even in their rebellion. It's an amazing truth that our God pursues rebellious humanity. Would you look with me again at our text? In in 
the beginning of chapter 3, we see the, the, the rebellion of the man and the woman against God. We see Eve uh, speaking with the serpent, and, and, and they're talking about God. They're quoting his words, but both misquote the words of God. The serpent takes things off what God said. The woman adds things to what God says. None of them accurately represent the word of God. And for all the talking about God in the first seven verses of of Genesis chapter 3, God never actually speaks, and he's never actually accurately represented. And in the end, the, the man and the woman rebel against God. Sin and death enter the world. Their eyes are open to their shame and to their sin. They see their nakedness. They cruelly sew together some leaves to try to cover their shame. And then we pick up in verse 8. Naked, hidden in the garden. We pick up in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Pay attention to the word presence there in verse 8. God is in the garden with the rebels. He didn't just write them off when they turned their back on him. He's in the garden. He is present with those who are rebelling against him. Imagine with me the scene. Can you see the man and the woman naked with these crudely sewn together fig leaves? Partially clothed yet fully clothed with shame and guilt. Can you see them hearing the horror of God in their midst, aware of their shameful nakedness, scrambling pathetically into the trees to hide from the God who sees all things? Can you see him there, hiding in the trees? But don't let the shameful hiding of the two ashamed rebels distract you from the incredible act of their heartbroken father in the immediate aftermath of their deadly rebellion. Because in his pursuit of rebellious humanity... God is present with the rebels. I would encourage you to write that down. In his pursuit of rebellious humanity, God is present with the rebels. Remember with me, if you will, what we read and learned last week. The woman was hanging out by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She's flirting with danger. She's encountering the crafty serpent. The crafty serpent knew exactly what to say. Uh, He played into hers and to the man's lusts. He played into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And in a crushing and brutal act, she and the man rebelled against God. Look with me back at verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and the eyes of them both were opened and they saw that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. God's image bearers fashioned by the very hand of God placed in the midst of the garden lavishly being provided for all their needs. Everything they could ever want was perfectly provided to them by God. These image bearers were made to be an untainted relationship with God and each other. Somehow, in the midst of all that lavish provision, somehow they chose instead to rebel. They chose to reject God's perfect, untainted relationship. And they also entered into an adversarial relationship with one another. And they're aware of their shameful nakedness in the midst of the garden. How does God respond 
How does the father respond when these two handcrafted creatures made in his image so willfully and heartbreakingly turn their back against him? Well, surprisingly, he doesn't come blasting onto the scene with fury. Man, I think back to some of my years in parenting when my kids were in open rebellion and defiance. Man, I wish I could say I didn't come blasting onto the scene with fury. God is sovereign. He obviously knew what they did. He wasn't surprised by their act. But rather than charge onto the scene with unbridled wrath, he comes instead walking in the garden moments after they rebelled and were clothed in shame. He came in the same way he'd walked with Adam and Eve before, and God drew near to two rebels. But this time, at the very sound of God moving in the garden, the man and the woman hid themselves. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. Even as God is present, the man and the woman hide as a result of fear. Even as God is present, the man and the woman hide as a result of fear. We know they hid in fear because that's exactly what the man says in verse 9. He says to God, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It was the fear of God that caused he and the woman to hide among the trees. What a fruitless endeavor. Hiding from God, all-knowing, sovereign God who sees and knows all things yesterday, today, and forever, hiding from him in the trees with crudely sewn together leaves trying somehow to manufacture a way to hide their shame. I'm reminded of the words of David in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I, shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even in darkness, it is not dark to you, God. The night is as bright as the day for the darkness is as light with you. What a futile endeavor to seek to hide from a holy and sovereign God. And yet at the sound of the man of God walking in the garden, uh, they respond by further rebellion. They plunge themselves deeper into the forest among the thick foliage. And as I read of their hiding, I'm not scratching my head wondering why. I've been there. Haven't you? Haven't you woken up to the reality of a foolish decision? Haven't you had that moment of clarity in your life where all of a sudden your shameful deeds are made aware to you and you're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? And everything in you wants to run and hide. It's part of being human. It's not difficult to understand why someone would want to hide from God, but it's futile. And we do it anyways. We flee from God because we don't want to hear his voice. In our rebellion, we reason that maybe, maybe it's even like a subconscious reasoning, but we think, if I deafen my ears to the voice of God, I won't have to deal with what he's about to say. So like a little child that puts their fingers in their ears and says, la, 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 we try to not listen to the word of God because we know it's going to pierce us at the deepest levels. We know that we're to respond to God's voice in obedience. We don't have to be taught that. We just know it's the truth. If you look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, we see, we see the voice of God and a call to obedience yoked together throughout the whole Pentateuch, especially in the, the book of Deuteronomy. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's this scene where the Israelites are speaking to Moses, 
And they're saying to Moses in chapter 5, verse 27, Hey Moses, go near to the Lord and hear all that our God will say. Speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And the people of Israel collectively say to Moses, And we will hear and do it. Hearing and doing go together. Hearing from God and obedience to his voice are linked biblically later on in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The roles are reversed. And and Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and he's saying to them, You shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all of his commandments that I have commanded you today. We don't have to be taught that hearing and doing go together. It's kind of an intrinsic understanding of when God speaks, creator God, we have to listen. But in rebellion, we turn our back on him. And if you think about the original audience to the book of Genesis, it was the very people that Moses is speaking to here in Deuteronomy. The people Israel wandering in the deserts. How timely would the story of Genesis been to them? I mean, God is speaking to the people of Israel through Moses. He is their mediator. And and God is telling the people of Israel to respond in certain ways. Then they have an opportunity to, to hear the origin story of humanity. And as the people of Israel are hearing about their ancestors, the man and the woman in the garden, and they're seeing the destruction that befell them because of their disobedience, they would have had great impetus to be obedient to the commands of God at Sinai. Amen? And so that's why this story is so powerful. I read this week, it can hardly be without purpose that the author opens the scene of the curse with a subtle but painful reminder of the single requirement for obtaining God's blessing to hear and obey the voice of the Lord. Look again with with me back at verse 8. They heard the sound of God walking in the cool of the day. That, That phrase has always stood out to me. God is walking in the cool of the day. That that phrase, in the cool, is from the Hebrew word ruach, which means wind, breath, mind, spirit. That same word, ruach, is, is is actually mentioned in the second verse of the first chapter. When we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, the phrase, in the Spirit, is ruach, the same word. The picture here in verse 8 is that of a divine wind that is blowing in the garden. God's presence is marked by the blowing of this wind. It invokes this biblical imagery of the wind of God coming in judgment and power. Think of the way God answers Job in Job chapter 38. Job is questioning God, questioning God, questioning God. Finally, in chapter 38, God speaks to Job after chapters of him questioning. Job 38, 1, it says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Ruach. God speaks through his wind. The man and the woman would have heard the wind of God blowing in the garden, leaves rustling, whipping through the trees, announcing the creator God's presence. And they would have known that God was walking in their midst. We can begin to understand a little bit better why they were afraid. Because the whirlwind of God's judgment is fear-inducing. Both naked and ashamed, they, they knew they couldn't stand in the presence of a holy God. And so what did they do? They hid themselves. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. It's interesting that they hide in the trees. Trees play a prominent role in the first three chapters of Genesis. In chapter 1 and 2, trees and their fruit were a part of God's abundant blessing, the way he, he provided lavishly for the man and the woman. But then in the beginning of chapter 3, a tree becomes the place of the rebellion when the man and the woman reject God's rule and they choose instead to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then now in our text, the tree becomes a place of rebellion to flee and hide from God. 
At the end of chapter 3, we'll see that the man and the woman are cast out of the garden and they're barred from having access to the tree of life. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 22, or chapter 21, when the law is given, a tree becomes a place of curse. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. The Apostle Paul quoted that exact verse in reference to Jesus Christ in the book of Galatians. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. How poetic, how powerful that upon a cross-shaped tree, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, would become a curse for us to bring life and redemption back to humanity. The ultimate picture of God's presence is Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The wrath of God for the sins of man creates appropriate fear. We ought to shudder under the concept of the wrath of God. But Christ has absorbed that wrath when he hung on the cursed tree, the wrath that you and I deserve. How incredible that when we think of the appropriate fear of the man and the woman for a holy God, when they realize how vile their sins are, how appropriate, they, they felt appropriate fear. What's the first thing the angel said when they announced the coming of Jesus? Fear not. Someone has come on your behalf. God himself has pursued rebellious humanity, and he's going to take on the wrath that creates fear. He's going to take on the wrath in your place. The ultimate picture of God pursuing rebellious humanity is the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. God drew near in and through his son, Jesus Christ. So the first thing we learn in our text today is in his pursuit of rebellious man, God is present with the rebels. Look again with me, if you would. Let's read the rest of the text one more time. Verses 9 through 13. But the Lord God called to the man and the woman, but the Lord God rather called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman to whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You see, God is not only present with the rebels in the garden, but he is in pursuit of them. He probes with piercing questions. He's trying to get to the heart of their rebellion. Here's the second thing I'd encourage you to write down. In his pursuit of rebellious humanity, God probes with piercing questions. In his pursuit of rebellious humanity, God probes with piercing questions. To probe is to search into and explore something thoroughly. To probe, it's an intrusive practice designed to obtain specific information for diagnosis. God's questions here of Adam and Eve, of the man and the woman, are designed to get to the heart of their rebellion. Ultimately, God is giving them an opportunity to recognize their sin that they might confess. But even as God is probing with his piercing questions, the man and the woman blame as a result of shame. Even as God is probing with his piercing questions, the man and the woman are blaming as a result of their shame. Look at the four questions he asks. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What is this that you have done? 
One scholar writes, the picture of God questioning before his act of judgment suggests the proceedings of a court session. The first three questions are directed at the man. The last question, though I think more rhetorical, is directed at the woman. The first question, where are you? As God, as God walks in the garden, he calls to the man. He knew where the man was. God's not, like, he hasn't lost the man. The question is for the sake of Adam, where are you? He's trying to draw the man out. One scholar notes that God's first words to fallen man has all the marks of grace. It's a question. Since to help him, he must draw rather than drive him out of hiding. Only the voice of God penetrates his concealment. The man answers, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. In that simple answer, the man reveals so much about what's going on in his inner world. In his response to God's question, he gives us a picture into what's going on in his heart and in his mind. Do you see the progression? I hid, I heard you, he says. God, I was aware of your presence. And I was afraid. I knew that there were consequences to my rebellion. And so I hid from you. In other words, I didn't want to face the consequences of my rebellion because I was naked. In other words, I was filled with shame, God. And the light of your glory would only reveal just how shameful my acts of rebellion actually were. At any one point in this progression of thoughts, Adam could have, could have paused. He could have hit the eject button. He could have turned his face back to God at the hearing of him in the garden, at the fear that overwhelmed him, at the hiding, at the shame, but he didn't. If you think of this progression in reverse order, it actually makes a lot more sense psychologically and spiritually because sin leads to shame. I don't need to convince you of that. Sin leads to shame. Shame leads to hiding. We hide because... Because we're terrified that our sin and our shame is going to be exposed. That's the fear. And so then, with this fear gripping our hearts, we do everything we can to avoid hearing the voice of God. Because we know if God speaks to us, it will force us to confront the root of the shame that overwhelms us. Can you identify with shame, with hiding, and with fear? Humankind has continued to shirk away from God ever since the fall. We may not be hiding in trees, but we're hiding just the same. And it can be disguised in a thousand different ways. Some may hide in man-centered morality. Others may hide in pleasure-seeking hedonism. Others might hide in self-help secularism or Darwinism or atheism or whatever ism you want to add. But any worldview that removes the voice of God as the central authority is in one sense or another hiding from God. And in response to the man's hearing and fearing and hiding and shaming answer, the Lord God asks two successive questions. He says to the man, who told you you were naked? And then he asks, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? But rather than answer the question, the man says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then starts the blame shifting. There's the obvious blaming of the woman. It's the woman's fault, God. She made me do it. What a strong leader. Throwing his wife under the bus before creator God. Adam. But then there's the more insidious and really the true blaming that's taken place in his response. The woman that you gave me, God. The woman you gave me. Really, it's your fault, God, because you gave her to me. Oh, you pathetic loser, Adam. Do you remember what you said just moments earlier in chapter 2? She was a blessing from God. 
Chapter 2, verse 23, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's a love story. It's the first marriage. Moses adds the commentary at the end of chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But now in the wreckage of his own choice, the man sees God's good gift as the source of his trouble. How pathetic. In his shame, the man continues acting in more destructive ways. And we see this shame cycle. Are you familiar with the shame cycle or the cycle of shame? I put it up on the board for you. Shame leads to a belief, either good or bad. Belief leads to an action, either self-centered or God-centered. And an action leads to a result, either results in freedom or it results in more shame. If you want to take a picture of that, we'll leave it up. I encourage you to take a picture of that. That's called the cycle of shame. Let's look at Adam in relationship to the cycle of shame. If shame leads to a belief, it led to a bad belief in the man's case. I'm naked and ashamed. I can't approach God. I need you to hide. My belief is that I must hide my failures. And this belief leads to a self-centered action. I'm naked and ashamed. It's the woman's fault, but really it's God's fault. The action is I must blame others for my own failures. The action leads to a result, which is a result of more shame in the man's case. If I'm not to blame, if there's nothing for me to confess, so delusional to the reality of my own sinfulness, I will forever be alienated from God and others. That's the result. And that results in utter loneliness, which causes the man to repeat the cycle of shame and slip into more shame-inducing behavior. It's a downward spiraling cycle that never ends unless we get plucked out of it. In our rebellion, we can fall into the same cycle. In the mess of your own personal sin, have you been tempted in your own personal lives to say, I must hide my failures from God and others? No one will love me if they know what really goes on between these ears or behind closed doors. And in an attempt to deflect from your own failures, have you been tempted to blame others? It must be someone else's fault. The problems of my marriage can't be my fault. It must be my spouse. The reason I'm struggling to, to have intimacy with God couldn't personally, couldn't possibly be that I have unconfessed sin in my life. It must be God's fault. He's distant. And under the weight of shame, have you been tempted to believe the lie that you will forever be alienated from God and others? And if that's a lie that you're believing, it's going to lead you back to more self-medicating behaviors that led to the shame in the first place. This is the shame cycle. It manifests in virtually every form of addiction. Have you tried to hide your failures from God and others? Have you tried to place blame and make excuses for your own failures? Have you distanced yourself from God and others because you can't find freedom from shame? Have you fallen back into shame-inducing behaviors as a form of self-medication again and again and again and again and again? And you're sitting in the darkness and the mess of your own sin and you're thinking, God certainly cannot forgive me for the 47,000th time I've fallen into this trap. I'll tell you a little secret here. Every single one of us has an Achilles heel issue. Every single one of us. Every one of us in this room has a personal sin struggle that we can't overcome with a stiff upper lip and a five-step plan. It drives us to our knees every single day. And we try to do it on our own strength. It can't happen. Do you ever pause to think that maybe God put that thorn in your flesh to drive you to your knees so that you're stripped of self-sufficiency so that maybe in that place of utter, absolute abandonment of self, 
will, you might, for the first time in your whole entire life, wholly depend on him. Only God can pull us out of the shame cycle. It doesn't make sense for us to run from God. We have to let him pull us out. There's the fourth question that's directed to the woman. He says to her, what is this that you have done? Following the, the blame-shifting, excuse-making example of her leader, the man, the woman follows suit. She blames her failures on the cunning of the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate, she says. When I hear the final piercing question of God, I think of a loving father, broken-hearted, crying out to a rebellious child. Now, maybe it's me reading into the text, but this feels like more of a rhetorical question than an actual question. I mean, God knows what the woman has done. He knows full well the deadly implications of her and the man's rebellion. And yet, as a heartbroken father cries out over the sudden and tragic death of a child, God cries out, what is this thing that you have done? One of the most horrible and miserable things I've ever done in my entire life is read the suicide notes of children with their grieving parents. I've done it twice. I've sat with parents in that unspeakably dark aftermath of suicide, and I've read to them the last words of their children. It's an impossible moment. Suicide, as too many of us in this room know, leaves in its wake a kind of grief from which there is no relief. And as the broken, heart-wrenching words of their overwhelmed and and deceived children are read to devastated parents, it is the most helpless and heartbreaking of all realities. I've sat there with parents and I've read those horrible words as they hear their children writing their last words entrapped by the lies of the enemy. And parents just want to scream back through time. They want to scream through the words of the tear-stained note. No, that's a lie. It's not true. What is this that you have done? It's horrible. It's a heartbreaking reality that you can't change. To watch parents grieve over the bodies of their children is horrific. When I hear the words of God over the actions of Adam and Eve, what is this that you have done? It's the same thing. It's death. The act of rebellion by the man and the woman was a suicidal plunge. God asked the man and the woman four questions. He already knew the answers. He knew the answers to these questions. He was asking them to offer an opportunity that they would confess, that they would be honest with him that they would be transparent, that they would turn their face to him. He was giving them an invitation to stop running, to stop hiding, to get out of the cycle of shame. And at the end of the questioning, as they sink even deeper into their shame and fear and hiding, we see the pained heart of God for his image-bearing creation. You know, I think God questions us. I think he does it in a variety of ways. I think right now, as you sit under the preached word, God might be questioning you. Maybe when you read the scripture or... God brings conviction into your life or there are certain circumstances that bring pain. I'm convinced that one of the reasons you and I choose to live such over-busy lives, I'm convinced that one of the reasons we are so addicted to hurry in our society, one of the reasons we create for ourselves an ever-connected, overly stimulated existence is because we know in the silence come the questions of God. 
Better an endless stream of Netflix binge-watching than God probing into my hidden life with his piercing questions. Better to have my kids involved in 101 activities that have me crisscrossing town and packing full my schedule than a few quiet moments at home where we as a family might have to confront the worldliness that has slowly crept into our home. It is in the stillness, it is in the solitude, apart from the demands and distractions of the day, that you and I finally put ourselves in position to hear from God. God is present with us today in this room. I wonder what piercing questions he might be asking of you. What are you hiding from God that he is probing at this morning? Whatever's on your mind right now might be the very thing he's trying to get at. Whatever's on your mind in your heart at this very moment might be the thing God is trying to get your attention with. Not to shame you. He's inviting you. He's pursuing you in love. He's giving you an opportunity to confess. Stop hiding. To be transparent with him. He's your father. He loves you. Part of being human is a daily struggle with sin. The lie of the enemy is that you're alone in your struggle. Look around. You're not alone in your struggle. I'm another sinner. I just happen to be on a stage. You're not alone. The sin that estranges us from God has been dealt with by Jesus Christ. When Christ went to the cross, he went to the cross on our behalf. God pursues rebellious humanity in and through Jesus. What enables you and me to draw near to God is not our own effort. What enables you and me to draw near to God is not a righteousness of our own. Remember the words of Paul in his letter to the churches of Galatia? He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, For our sake he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, Jesus, you and I might become the righteousness of God. It's not a righteousness of our own. It's an imputed, it's a given righteousness that comes through Christ. Our hope is not in our own effort, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus did what the man never did. Where Adam failed and fell into sinfulness, Jesus was victorious and brought righteousness. That's how Paul says it in Romans 5. Listen to Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because another person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Christ is our hope. When you look at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, he is led out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the enemy. Do you remember the scene? It's a popular scene. And as he's out there being tempted by the enemy after 40 days of, being, uh, of fasting, we see him in strength confronting the same serpent that deceived Adam and Eve. This is what one scholar writes. When the tempter approached Jesus in the wilderness, he carried no original material. The tempter prodded Jesus to provide food for himself, to set his eyes on the kingdoms to possess, and to force God's hand by asserting his own rule in his own time. In virtual point-by-point -point fashion, lust, eyes, pride, another serpent came to Jesus 
Only Jesus did not bite. Rather, Jesus decisively recaptured ground that Adam and Eve surrendered. Where the man and the woman fell to the lust of the flesh, Jesus did not. Where the man and the woman fell to the lust of the eyes, Jesus did not. Where the man and the woman fell to the pride of life, Jesus did not. Where the man and the woman succumbed to the temptation of the enemy, Jesus did not. It all started in a garden called Eden. Where the disobedience and rebellion of the one man, Adam, brought sin and death. It all ended in a garden called Gethsemane. Where the obedience and sacrifice of the one man, Jesus, brought righteousness and life. Do you remember the scene in the garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was betrayed? Jesus. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. And Jesus cried out to the Father. He says, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. God pursues rebellious humanity. In and through Jesus Christ, God pursues you and me. Though two of my kids are adults now, I have another one who's quickly on her way to adulthood. She thinks she's already an adult. I can still see them as little kids scrambling up the stairs trying to get away from the velociraptor of their imagination. I chase them down the hallways and up the stairs. And when they realized their attempts were futile, I was much faster and stronger and bigger. They'd collapse in fear and surrender. And I'd snatch them up in my arms to their screams of horror. And I'd whisper in their ear, I'm not a velociraptor, I'm your father. And in one second, the fear would go away. The fighting against me would turn to a loving embrace. The screams of fear would turn to joyous laughter. The Father's pursuit of us is purely a pursuit of love. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for this picture of you, a loving Father who pursues us in love. God, I pray against the lies that many of us might be believing this morning that has kept us hiding in the trees. God, I pray against the lies that many of us are believing this morning that has kept us in the cycle of shame. God, by the power of your spirit, would you open our eyes at this very moment to the truth of your love for us. It is because you love us that you pursue us. And God, in this very moment, in, this, in these few moments of silence, God, would you, would you prod, would you prompt, would you convict the men and the women who are listening to my voice? God, in this very moment, would they, in the silence of their heart, confess unto you those very things that have kept them in hiding? I am so thankful, God, that you are a forgiving God, that you are a gracious God, that you love us, that you welcome us back. God, would we not feel the lie of guilt and shame, but the, the freedom of forgiveness, the freedom of grace today, God. As we stand and worship, may we worship as redeemed, forgiven, fully loved children of the Most High God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.